Hi, this is Frank Bedore, and you're listening to the FSF Popcast. Like Alice in Wonderland, we too had a choice. One pill would make us smarter, the other pill would make us funny. Apparently, we chose a shiny option number three, which means we didn't either. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort you'll give Redshirt crewman number 1998. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and joins the crew of the Enterprise in their struggle against Tucker, Pat, Woogie, and Brett Favre, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope because the Redshirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and what's left of Warren's baseball. All right, guys, our guest today is a best-selling author. He's got this great book series, which I am very excited to get started into. It's called The Looking Glass Series. That was very reflective, and you probably couldn't see that. But anyway, uh, this is that, and you guys are going to want to check that out. It's a modern-style revision of the Lewis Carroll classic Alice and uh, Alice's, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Good luck editing that out, John. Uh, John's our editor, by the way, if you didn't know that. Now, not to mention that he's a world champion skier. He's uh, He's been an actor, a stuntman. He's also been a producer of a couple films. Maybe you've heard of one of them. You know, there's this one wasn't very popular. Not very many people liked it. It was called There's Something About Mary. Yeah, maybe you saw that one. Uh, I totally didn't. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we are very excited to welcome Frank Bedore to the FSF podcast. Welcome to the show, Frank. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, uh, very excited to have you on today. There's this. This is one of those times when we have somebody on where I don't know where to start first with any line of questioning because typically when we talk to somebody they're like oh i was an actor and a singer or oh i was a writer and an actor you're like screw it i'm going to do everything uh, <laughs> and i'm going to be good at it all which is highly depressing <laughs> for us normal folk now normally i like to start by asking our guests about their origin story you know how they got to be the person who they are uh that's sitting across the interview table from us but today, I want to talk to you about your your career progression and really your transformation over the years. Because like I said, there's a, a lot of different things that you've done, a lot of different hats that you've worn over the years. So how does one go from being a world champion skier to doing stunts and acting to being a movie producer to becoming a, a best-selling author? How does that transition work? Because they all seem so wildly different. Well, that's, that's actually a really good question because I, I've tried to connect the dots on how that and why that happened in, in interviews and even when I'm talking to my kids sometimes. And I usually have to go back to my dad who was oddly an advocate of failing. He goes, you know, I failed a lot in my life. And then he points out that President Lincoln failed in all of these uh, elections before he was elected president. Um, and he said, the thing about failing is it opens doors to other opportunities and maybe something that you'll enjoy in your life, because ultimately, if your work is the same as the thing in life that gives you joy, you've really succeeded. And so I had a passion when I was young for athletics and for skiing. I grew up in Minnesota. It was cold. It was isolated. And um I also wasn't that popular in school and skiing was something that I gravitated towards like a lot of, you know, teenagers that I was good at and it started to give me an identity. And I really focused on that out of, out of insecurity. 
which is the part what like what what drives people to become really successful and underneath it there's some level of insecurity and um and so skiing and having some success in skiing became the catalyst for me to to feel confident enough after my ski career to take choices and to fail what you don't point out and what you couldn't know is that my stunt career was very short and not that successful. My acting career was definitely not successful. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of years of 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 struggle and uncertainty. But because I had had success in skiing, I was able to hold on to that part of me that felt secure and hang on to that as I was trying new things and failing. Um, and while I was skiing, uh, I was a reader and a writer, but I had this laser focus on the thing I was doing. Sure. Um, and then when I started acting, they talked about playwrights and learning and studying playwrights to understand the text so you could act. And I had a really great teacher and that's when I fell in with writing. And then I went from there. Interesting. You know, also interesting to me is, is the way that you phrase it about your dad being an advocate of failing. Now, last night, uh, my son and I and one of his friends went to the, we, we live in Michigan. So we went to the Detroit Tigers baseball game in downtown Detroit. And on the way home, his friend and I were talking because my son was sitting in the backseat, uh, finishing up a, a paper he had to write for college. So uh, his buddy and I were sitting in the front seat as we're driving. And he starts talking about, you know, the importance of failing. So it's kind of interesting, you know, last night and now, and now this afternoon, I don't know what the universe is trying to tell me here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually starting to get a little worried right now. Uh, but it, it, I think it's interesting, you know, because the way that your dad phrased it, but also the way that, that his, uh, my son's friend phrased it was that, you know, yeah, people think failing is a bad thing, but it's so vital and important because you now know what not to do the next time you know how to better attack something else and you know where your pitfalls are. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a teen or you're in your twenties, that's, that's the time to do it. Right. Um, sports is a metaphor for that, which is why when you go to a baseball game and you come out of a game like that, you might talk about that win or lose. But um, you know, my dad also used to say your twenties should be the time you explore. And by the time in your thirties, you can decide if you want to focus on one thing or not, but mm -hmm. uh, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, you're taught, Hey, get that college education, get that good job that pays and then right. stay in there, uh, stick with it. Not, Hey, go try a bunch of stuff and fail and call me <laughs> if you need some money. <laughs> Let me know if yeah. you bomb. Yeah, there, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of parents out there that would not give that opportunity. So you're yeah. very lucky in that regard, which is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, listen, my mom was on the other side of it. My mom was very nervous about that and where's the security and and um, all those issues. And she she continued to, you know, be that way for basically until she passed away a few years ago. So uh, so it depends on personalities. But, you know, I very much my father's son. So my father was very um, adventuresome. Uh, he had a traveling water ski show that had a one-legged boy that he met who had lost his leg crawling under a, a friend of his crawling under a train. And my dad went to the hospital and said, hey, 
I'm looking for a one-legged man for kid for my show. Do you think you'd be up? I'll teach you how to water ski. Taught this kid how to water ski. He's had this quartet of um, singers that, you know, all the guys from the football team and, and uh, they would carry the uh, cheerleaders on their shoulders. And he traveled all over the Midwest. And then he decided to promote it. He was going to water ski down the Mississippi for Paul Bunyan land was his sponsor. And the boat was, uh, the blue ox, babe, the blue ox. And my dad was Paul Bunyan. And uh, he water skied from Minneapolis to New Orleans, promoting his water ski show and stopping in city after city and putting on a show in each city. So I was like, That's okay, really how, cool. how do I compete with, how do I compete <laughs> with that guy? Uh, you That's... don't, unfortunately. But, yeah, you, you don't. but somehow you still did. So impressive. That's, That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of your skiing career, uh, I would not say I'm the best skier. In fact, the last time I went skiing, I was very, very small. And I have a very distinct memory of flipping head over heels a few times and crashing into a pile of snow. Uh, so over your career as a skier or a stunt person, <laughs> What was the funniest and or worst wipeout you've ever experienced? Well, I've had a lot of those, but um, uh, let's see. The worst wipeout, the scariest, was in Lac de Teens, France. And uh, no, I'm sorry. That's not true. The worst was in Quebec. And I had met a very attractive Quebec um local uh skier and she and i had spent uh, i spent i stayed out really late that night and so i was really tired the next day and a whiteout came in um and so when i and i was doing uh aerial acrobatics and when you do aerial acrobatics the snow in the sky helps you distinguish where you're where you're at and when there's a whiteout when there's a lot of what they do is they put um pine needles on the landing hill so that you can see, orient yourself to flipping and where to land. Mm. But I, I, I was, and the in-run was funky and the speed was wrong and I had been out late. I misjudged everything. And instead of doing three flips, I did two and a half flips. And you know, you're landing on about a 30 degree landing hill, but my tips stuck in and my back arched and for, what seemed about 30 seconds, which was probably about five seconds, my left side was paralyzed. And I thought I had paralyzed myself. Uh, and oh I thought boy. that was it. So that was truly terrifying in the moment. Both skis were broken in half. And as I got up and I was staggering up, my face was all you know, um, uh, burned from the snow. I handed my broken skis to um, to my friend and said, well, these are your souvenirs. I'm not sure it was worth it, but. Uh... <laughs> oh. That, uh, yeah, that. That's interesting. I'm and happy funniest, you didn't get paralyzed. The funniest thing that happened to me was I was in Australia for the summer tour of their winter. And my friend, we were going up the chairlift it was raining at the top and he said, uh, I'm jumping off. And I go, what? He goes, I'm not getting wet. I'm jumping off. And he swung around 
and let go. And I go, well, I'm going with you. And I went, but when he let go, the 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 chairlift bounced, and I bounced off the chairlift and fell on my back in the snow. Now it wasn't that it wasn't that high. It was only I don't know, twelve feet or something. But I got out the wind knocked out of me, and then a mountain manager saw this and came down and started screaming at me and was hitting me with his pole. Like, what do you think you're doing? Like you risked all these people on the chairlift. And then I got kicked off the mountain and I was there for a competition and I couldn't use the chairlift. Uh, oh, so, no. so the organizers said, you can take this um, snowcat to the top. And the day of the competition, it was also raining. I was the only competitor in the snow snowcat at the top of the mountain dry waiting for my run so oh, that's turned, fantastic yeah, so. hey i guess it all worked out in the end yeah uh, anyway those are my two stories <laughs> frank's like and ta-da, i'm done <laughs> more adventurous life than most I love not it. gonna lie did not know there was skiing in australia yeah uh, mount threadbow uh and uh, mount buller um, it's it's quite good. New Zealand's better, but we had a we had a great time. I don't know with climate change what's going on down there, but yep, they definitely have skiing. And now all I can think about is hobbits on skis in New Zealand. So there's that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Frank, every time we have an author on the show, I talk to my daughter because my daughter is a voracious reader, and she's so very excited because we literally built her new bookshelves in her bedroom yesterday and she got to put all her books up on the wall and her new bookshelves she's got five bookshelves that span the whole one side of her room and the, her whole wall is nothing but books and Amazing. she's she's in book heaven uh, at the moment so i always ask her you know hey do you know anything written by this person and when i said your name the, the name didn't ring a bell but i said oh well he wrote the looking glass series she goes Oh, wait a second. You mean Looking Glass Wars? I said, yeah, yeah, the Looking Glass Wars. That's what it is. And that's when she <laughs> brought me out this book. She's like, I literally just bought this. Oh, this wow. Is, uh, yeah, li literally bought this. Um, the The spine is barely even cracked on it. Uh, but most of that is done by me because I was looking <laughs> at it. And I just want to say before I, I have, I have a question for you here. I promise we're getting to one. But I just want to point out that, A, I'm very excited actually to to get into this book. Uh, because I, we found it late last night and that's, um, how old's your daughter? She's 16. Oh, okay. Perfect. But, uh, the artwork in this, sir, is fantastic. Uh, the, depict, the depiction of the Jabberwocky and red and yeah, the Mad Hatter and the card soldiers. As I was looking at this, I was like, yeah, this looks awesome. This looks amazing. And I could not, I could get where people were coming from because i've read so many reviews about your book you know the the series in general but so yeah very excited to get into this and to look into this um i'll be i'll be uh breaking that spine in on that book here very shortly all right so i told you all that so i could so i could get to this point hopefully you're still awake now uh <laughs> can you tell us where your vision for the revision of lewis carroll's story yeah, where did that come from? How did that come about? And did you encounter any specific challenges as a writer when you crafting a story inside of another story? Uh, well, those are very good questions. And uh, I, I'm just going to go back because you had the book open 
and you were showing artwork um, and that artwork was as a movie producer, I had the experience and understanding that the visuals became a really great tool to help readers, um, you know, make a decision of whether they want this book or not. It also became a great tool in marketing in terms of mm -hmm. going from website to website to share something, whether it was exclusive or not. But mostly it was a way to express the world visually and, and have that be an invitation. And so the fact that you just opened the book and looked at the artwork um, as an invitation to getting into it is really satisfying. And I'm going to give you a question to ask me later about that artwork because it became a uh, one, there's a Star Wars story and I apparently you guys like Star Wars. There's a Star Wars story attached to it. And um, it's interesting from a writing standpoint. So okay. I'm going we'll to back table that. that, come back to that. But so as I mentioned, or you guys mentioned at the top, I, I produced uh, There's Something About Mary and I was in London for the world premiere and I had an hour to kill. So I went to the British Museum and I don't know if you've been to the British Museum, but it's really I remarkable. Have. Yeah, it's a remarkable place, great place to take mm -hmm. your kids. Uh, and they had an exhibit of ancient cards, like playing cards. Matter of fact, they had cards that Napoleon had commissioned of his many battles. And there were these hand-painted images. But what caught my attention at the very end of the exhibit was an incomplete deck of cards. And on these cards were images that reminded me of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, except they seemed a little bit more goth and dark and kind of twisted and I was like, what's the deal with these cards? And I was kind of obsessed about these cards and I was telling all my friends about them. And I guess I was, I guess it was not so exciting to everybody else because I was out with my friend Richard. We were at this bar and this girl came up and I was talking about these cards and he was kicking me under the table. I'm like, what, what? He goes, stop talking about the cards, man, it's boring. Um, and I said, well, look at it. I'm obsessed with these cards. And he goes, I know, I know. I'm going to help you out. I know this antiquities dealer. And I think he trades and collects cards. So call him up and you can talk to him. So he gave me his number and I called this guy up. And turns out that he knew all about the cards at the British, British Museum. And he claimed to have the remaining cards to the incomplete deck. So I basically invited myself over and <laughs> he... He was very eccentric um, and he left the room. I was asking a bunch of questions. He left the room and he came back with this box and he opened it up and these cards from this, in, this incomplete deck were there. And he started to tell me this story. And that story became the inspiration for the true story of what really happened to that little girl, Alice Little, quote unquote, the muse of Lewis Carroll. Um, and that kicked off my 20 year writing adventure. That is, that is a really cool story. Actually. So, I story with a story, with a story, with a story, the story, so, behind the story behind the story turns out that, um, you know, Lewis Carroll wasn't inspired to write his fairy tale to entertain Alice little. Alice Little, her true name is Al Princess Alice Hart. She was exiled to our world, adopted by the Little family. She told her harrowing story, 
but it was too scary and too disturbing. And she had been a street urchin and he thought it was trauma. So he rewrote her story so that it would be more acceptable and plausible and uh, delightful and whimsical. Um, and the Looking Glass Wars is what really happened to Alice. That's a really cool concept. Now, when, and I, I love the, I lo actually, I love it. I think it's fantastic. I love it when when stories get, there's a re-envisioning of the story and it's not just, you know, because sometimes when people say they've re-envisioned something, it's just, it's like story adjacent. It's just kind of like, here's the original story and here's their their story. There's very little changes between the two. And from everything I've seen so far and just kind of perusing the book and, and looking at the reviews and looking at the the books that follow this in your in your series, it is certainly not... Um, I think the only thing that I've seen that's a, what I would call story adjacent is that there's some similar names and locations and, you know, it's it's a it's a much different story. And I think that's very cool. Well, everything is a little bit of a twist. So if you think about the bigger concept, so if Alice Little, the muse for Lewis Carroll, is actually Alice Hart, that means Wonderland is real. And then if Wonderland is only one of many nations in Wonder Nations, then it's infinite the amount of creativity you can have. So with the characters that you know, like the White Rabbit, which in the true story is Bibwit Hart, which is an anagram of White Rabbit that Lewis Carroll changed. Um, and Hatter Madigan is real, I mean, is not the Mad Hatter. He's really this badass guy. Uh, Queen Red, they're all like just a slight riff and then the worlds themselves become like the chessboard desert is a real place with uh with real combat issues and it looks like a chessboard a chess uh a, a checker board or a chessboard because the board which is a military outfit does their training there so it starts to be an exercise in world creation and imagination um, and then it expands above and beyond. I can't, I, you can't write 15 books and stay in the box of what Lewis Carroll did. Right. You, you have to have, you have to broaden the, the, the canvas, which is why yeah. the con concept allows that. Yeah. Because if you didn't have a vision for where it was going to go past that, you never would have made it past, you know, two, one book, two books, you know? So it's very cool that you have a vision about that. So the second part of that question was, do you, were, did you find any specific challenges in trying to craft a story inside of that story? Or you, was there something where you hit a point where it's like, that was the difficult spot for you to get around? I mean, and I'm not talking to like just writer's block or something like that. I'm talking about, you know, where there was a difficulty to connect your world to that world, in, you know, whether visually or or in, in character or story build. Uh, well, you know, it was... It was my first published novel, so there was lots of problems. Not that there were issues with with taking the Lewis Carroll mythos and creating new mythos necessarily, except when it comes to when you're creating a whole world fantasy, uh, what the logic and rules of your universe need to make sense. And what I kept doing was trying to figure out, okay, like, let's just take transportation. So is it through a looking glass? Is it a portal? Is it, what is it? And I wanted to use the pool of tears um, because I thought that was different and unusual. So I was like, okay, how do I, you get there to the 
to, through the pool of tears, you drop into the pool of tears, and people know as a legend, it takes you to another world, but no one ever comes back. But eventually, Hatter has to come back. And then in our world, he's going from puddle to puddle, looking for a puddle where no puddle should be, which is a portal. And I kept screwing that up. I just kept backing myself into corners. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Now I've broken a rule. Then I had a character go through a mirror. I'm like, this is just cheating on all levels. So I have to get, I have to figure it. I have to take one, uh, one mechanism and, and, and be able to drill down on it so that readers can suspend disbelief and then it makes sense to me. Um, and I have my own logic. And so I had to rewrite things so many times, particularly chapters that had to do with, uh, the, because in the novel, you go from Wonderland to our world back and forth. So it's really a story of Alice not falling down a rabbit hole, coming up through the rabbit hole to our world, um, and then returning to fight for her rightful place as the true warrior queen. So there suddenly there was people going back and forth, and I had to make sense of that and not break rules. And... I was breaking a lot of rules. And I think I still break rules. People are like, that doesn't make sense, that thing. Well, that was because it was the first book I wrote and I didn't know what I was doing. And so <laughs> if I was to go back, I would do a much better job. And I can tell right. you, I can tell you the scene that haunts me, haunts me that I wish I could go back. Okay. Can I just can I describe it? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm gonna give you the premise of the book because uh and, and I, I do Comic Con, so it's gonna take 30 seconds. So Princess Alice Hart, she's the star of the show. She's enjoying her seventh birthday when suddenly there's a violent coup led by our evil Aunt Red. Her bodyguard, Hatter Madigan, whisks her uh, away through the pool of tears. Now, the legend is, as I said, it's a portal from Wonderland to our world, but no one's ever come back. They have no choice. They jump in to the pool of tears. Tragically, they're separated. Alice shoots out of a puddle. She ends up in Oxford. Lewis Carroll shoots out of a puddle and he ends up in Paris and he goes on a 13 year mission to find Alice. That's the story. That's the setup. So in the novel, he goes, he's one mission. He swore to the queen. He would find her, his, her daughter and return her to Wonderland to be the rightful queen. And for 13 years, he's searching for her. And when he finally finds her, she's at She's at Buckingham Palace because she's going to marry Queen Victoria's fourth son, Leopold. She, he, he gets outside of the, um, of the palace and he gets in a fight and he gets wounded and he decides to go back to Wonderland and tell everybody that she's alive and that send reinforcements to find her and bring her home. Okay. Like... 13 years, you get shot in the shoulder, you go back to Wonderland, you don't have a confrontation with her, you don't see her face-to-face. -face. The reason I didn't want her to be face-to-face -face because I thought, I can't have her go back to Wonderland. And I thought, oh, he's definitely gonna bring Alice with him back to Wonderland, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Versus having the confrontation, having him go through 13 years, having her say, I'm not going back with you. My life is here. And him saying, no, it's my sworn duty. You have to come back with me. And then her her trump card is, wait, I'm your queen, right? You have to do what I say, right? Yes. I command you to leave. Leave this minute. So what could have been a better scene, having our two leads face-to-face -face and having a huge conflict? Where is that scene in the book? It's not there. Do I want to 
swear I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my trouble. All right. I think that's a very specific challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So, the only way I can fix that is do a TV show or a movie, and 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 that's and that's how I came to rewrite the scene, and and then I had to I had to give I had to forgive myself and uh, and move on and say that book was in that time and that's done. I did the best I could, and there's probably a million things I would change now, but that scene uh, yes. in, that scene in particular is uh, the, haunts me. The, the joy of hindsight being twenty twenty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's it's always great when you're writing a novel and anything, and then suddenly you write it knowing you have one way to go, but then you end up going the total opposite direction anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Too late. Too late. I wish you would have been around earlier. Earlier, You could have told me that. <laughs> well, uh, along with uh, writing Looking Glass Wars, you also have the All Things Alice podcast that you started. Uh, yeah. How did that come about and what have been some highlights or important things that have happened uh, during your show? Oh, well, thanks for mentioning that. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, because I live in the Wonderland universe, uh, and I didn't know this when I started, I didn't realize how deeply seated Alice in Wonderland was in pop culture. Um, and during the sort of the last four or five years in, in just in politics alone, you know, we're down a rabbit hole, we're through a looking glass. It was almost weekly that you could see a headline about that. Um, and then I didn't know, for instance, that Guinness for 30 years did all of these Alice in Wonderland ads about their Guinness beer being good for you, riffing off of Alice in Wonderland. And then if you just think about Lewis Carroll didn't invent rabbit holes, but he invented it as a portal, how we use it, it's it's in our everyday life. Every single day, right. somebody does it. So turns out Alice in Wonderland is the most quoted literary works in the world behind the Bible. So I thought, well, if Alice is so deeply seated, I could do endless podcasts about Alice as a muse for creativity, for imagination, for language, for gardens, for video games, for books. Um, and so I thought I would have guests on and use Alice as the muse for your creativity and your, you know, whatever endeavor that you're mm -hmm. inspired to, and then see what people's takes our analysis. And so I think to answer the second part of the question, the fun that I've had or interesting is having multiple guests on. Uh, had There's one musical that's coming out called the Mad Hatter musical. And I had the composer and the lyricist and the book writer. Um, that was really, that was great. They were all talking about their influences and they had such a deep understanding of it. But people have a deep understanding of Alice in, from pop culture, not just those books you have, you have to add, you have to Jefferson Airplane, you have to add The Matrix, mm -hmm. like you brought up in the beginning about Blue Pill and, and, uh, and a Red Pill, but it's, it was, it was blue um, and red uh, liquid from mm -hmm. the original. So 
we're using it all of the time. So it's curious to me what we're actually scraping together when we're inventing and talking about these things. You're taking 150 years of pop culture, especially since the 50s and 60s through current day. So uh, that's been that's been fascinating. And then it's also fun to ask, I'll ask you guys, if you were a character from Alice in Wonderland, who would you be and why? <laughs> um, no, oh no. And both the uh, Lewis Carroll adaptation and what I've seen out of your book, both, I want to be uh, Mad Hatter or, you know. Hatter Madigan? Hatter Madigan, yes. If everyone wants to be the Mad Hatter. Because everyone. he's, A, he's fun in, in the Disney movie, okay? He's a little crazy, he's eccentric, he's, you know, whatever. Uh, in Batman, the, the Mad yes. Hatter is, mm -hmm. is also involved there. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, he's a villain. Uh, he's a great he's villain. A, he's, he's, he's a great villain, exactly. Um, and then in your book series, as you put it earlier, he's kind of B.A. And, yeah. uh, you know, I kind of like that idea of him being like this, you know, um, you know, bodyguard, you know, uh, tough guy who can, you know, like, I, you know, just in what I've seen of uh, what I've seen of him and what I've read about him. And, you know, because there's like a wiki page out there about your books and, you know, and all these different things and how they describe him is, you know, he's basically... Uh, I see him as like one of the guys from Assassin's Creed, but uh, you know, as in in you know old English style dress, and you know, it's just really cool. Well, and you're wearing a hat today, and uh, he is a man of uh, many hats, and uh, his hat is his signature weapon. When he throws it, hat his hat it transforms into blades. GRG. <laughs> <-R> <laughs> yeah, Grand so, Rapids uh, Griffins. Uh, so I need to get you a hat or hat. So for thanks, I mean for Halloween. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yes, please. Oh, <laughs> I think, I think I would like to be like the Cheshire Cat, just this unknowable being that just seems to be there for good or bad purposes, depending yeah. on who you're talking to. Yeah. And just mess with people. Yeah. <laughs> with just that to be smile. like, you know, go this way or that way or this way or yeah. that way, kind of. <laughs> Kind of like a more sinister Bugs Bunny a little yeah. bit. <laughs> so that's what I do. I ask people, um, I ask people their favorite uh, Alice-inspired piece of pop culture, whether it's a song or an amusement park or, a, you know, a, a movie or TV show or what have you. So, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting that on, in, in all honesty, it, it, not until this conversation right here today did I ever associate The Matrix with Alice in Wonderland. Ever mm -hmm. deeply, and, deeply, oh, yeah. deeply influenced everything never, in that. Everything never in even, that is it just like honestly, like 747 right over top of the head. <laughs> never <laughs> even considered it, never mm -hmm. even thought about it. Morpheus literally says that in the movie. Yeah. yeah. He says, see how far this rabbit hole goes. Yeah. Yeah. I know he or says how deep that, the but... rabbit hole goes or something like that. It's literally in the movie. And and I not only that, that he said it, but still. Yeah. No, and, and not only that, if you look at the floors, they're all checkerboards. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, there's so many motifs in that. That's uh, just crazy to me. In that show. So. I got to go back and rewatch it just because yeah. now just. And there's a, I mean, there's a yeah. rabbit uh, tattoo. Uh, follow the uh, white rabbit. Yep, follow yeah. the white rabbit. So. And as soon as you said, you know, the red pill, blue pill, was, you know, I'm like, that's what really kind of, that's what turned the light bulb on in my head when you said that. I was like, oh. Yeah, and they did that big campaign with the poster for the latest one was take the red pill or the blue pill. That's it. Yeah, it's so. just crazy, man. So I mean, I it 
same thing with you, Tim. It didn't occur to me how deeply ingrained Alice in Wonderland is in our pop culture. I mean, just thinking of how many movies of Alice in Wonderland there are. Like, I can think of at least four off the top of my head, and each one stacking understanding on top of each other. It's like, are we talking about the Tim Burton version? Are we talking about the Disney version? Are we talking about the hundreds of plays of Alice in Wonderland? Just all of it taking either direct from the book or from the book and from current pop culture. Maybe they're going the more whimsical. Maybe they're going the more, like, gothic, grimdark style. It just, it's amazing how far the rabbit hole goes, you know? Yeah, I mean, what they what you see more mostly is Alice um, inspired motifs. So in Stranger Things, you'll see an image of the rabbit hole. I mean, of a rabbit from Lewis Carroll's on the wall in a kid's room, or the Tubi ad with the the uh, the rabbit hole that come into our into our you know network. Um, in Jurassic Park, there was on the computer, there was a white rabbit. There was some rabbit thing that I can't remember. Um, Star Trek, they literally had the book. Um, I mean, it's basically, it's constantly referenced because like I said, she's been amused for many, many creators and incredible amount, a number of, um, of uh, musicians. By the way, I have a soon to be 16 year old daughter uh, and she's of course obsessed with Taylor Swift. And of course, she doesn't think I know anything about Taylor Swift, which I don't know much. However, she told me that Taylor Swift wrote a Wonderland song about this mystery man uh, that was told about a breakup that was Harry Styles. So I wrote a blog about it and how amazing Taylor Swift's lyrics were and how expressive they were. And, uh, and suddenly my daughter's like, I'm sh she's sharing my blog with all her friends. She has not mentioned my book to any of her friends. I can't tell you. I don't remember. I don't know if she ever has, but this Taylor Swift blog is hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you just got to work Taylor Swift into your books. That's all you got to do. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cast her as Alice. There you go. Actually, that might not be I, a bad pull. I'm pretty sure people would see that. Yeah. <laughs> like, not just because Taylor Swift, but because... I. I, mean, I would back probably up the watch brink, that yeah. show or, or movie. Back up the brink trucks to get her, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, Frank, one of the things that I was looking at uh, when we we do our research for people is I like to scour through their website if they have one, uh, as one tends to do when you do a, a polite digital stalking or what <laughs> the kids are calling research these days. Um <laughs> But one of the things that I found, and not just on your own website, but going out about into uh, other various corners of the interwebs, is that since about 2011, there has been a groundswell of people who want to see your book series transformed, and, transformed into either a, mo a movie, a series of movies, or something long format television-wise. Now, so here I have a two-part question for you, because you kind of mentioned this earlier, especially with the rework of your, uh, your scene and how you would like to have that reworked. So if that were to happen, do you have any reservations about the process, knowing that it's not uncommon for things to have to change from the page to the screen? I'll ask that one first. 
Uh, no, I, I, I don't, um, because I have a lot of experience um, understanding that each medium is different. So even when I went from my prose to my graphic novel uh, series, uh, it was a whole different animal that I had to understand. And uh, from the movie standpoint, the, my, in the book, you meet my character at seven, then at 13, and then 20. And when you do a movie, you always want the star to be introduced early on. So um, so the trick when we were, when I, and I'll tell you about this later, when I was first uh, in the middle of trying to develop this as a, as, a, as a motion picture, was how do I condense this story that takes place over 13 years, and you have a young girl who turns into a 20-year-old and go back and forth within two or two and a half hours. Um, and that was that was really challenging. And I was nervous about doing that and not having control, uh, but I wasn't nervous about the actual taking the book apart and putting back together in the best way possible for a movie. It just seemed very challenging. Then when I pivoted to do it as a TV show, then all sorts of opportunities presented themselves. Um, there are, of course, these these uh, these sort of rules uh, that people, you know, uh, go with. For instance, okay, we need to see the star of our show. Um, we don't want people to fall in love with the seventeen a seven year old and then have her disappear. Um, but in uh, Queen's Gambit, they did a really great job. They had a cold open of the lead character, and then they cut to her as a little girl, and the entire first episode was her origin story. And then at the very end of that scene, you picked up and you saw her entering the competition, and then they start, and then they back up again to when you can see her, the same actor, actress, even though she's 15, 16. And that was a bit of an epiphany uh, for me in terms of thinking about how I could construct a eight to 10 episode television show and what the benefit of doing, adopting the looking glass, adapting the looking glass wars as a television, sh television show versus a movie. Yeah. Cause I, I would think that as a, as a TV show, especially a long format TV show, something like you said about the eight to 10 episode range per season, you know, because you have multiple books here that that would probably be a, a better fit for you. Now, the second part of this question is just a, it's just a hip shot here because I, I look at what you're doing and I look at some of the stuff that's already out there on other channels. And I'm like, man, where, where, where would I, as a viewer want to see this type of content? And so I immediately thought of like Apple TV plus or possibly Amazon, because those two seem to be the ones that have similar content and seem to be able to promote it well and, and understand what they're, what there is required to make that happen. So what are the chances of seeing a looking glass series? Well, Amazon has a lot of those big fantasy shows. And so they, they are looking for IP that, um, that are in that, in this universe as looking glass wars and Apple is doing the same thing, right? They don't do a lot, but they want things that are, uh, what they call four quadrant where, you know, like your show, or anybody can come on and listen to the show, whether you're a kid mm -hmm. or male, female. So, so those are two really strong places for the Looking Glass Wars to live. Amazon, I went to 
Unfortunately, I went to them right after they bought Lord of the Rings for $250 million and Wheel Out. of Time. Yeah. And so they they really liked it. Um, and they were like, you should come back to us. But what they were really saying to me was, bring us a package, bring us a showrunner, a director, an actor that we can't say no to. Uh, and as a producer, you know, that's called packaging. And you have to find mm -hmm. these people and put them together. It used to be that they would buy your idea. Like I have a movie at Warner Brothers. They bought the idea and then they develop it. And then they go hire people. They go, hey, let's go get this person or that person. Right. <laughs> but now it's now it's more on the producer's shoulders to say, bring us everything because we're getting so much content. We want pre-packaged material that we can just say yes to and put into the pipeline, not develop. And so I'm a, a little bit I'm a little bit in between right now. I've done a beautiful deck. I've done a beautiful Bible. I wrote a pilot that I've now changed because of some of the story, like The Witcher. I love the way The Witcher is structured, and that's a big universe, and it's playing with time. And then the time and the characters are a bit of a mystery until they get revealed. Oh, that young person is this person. And for The Looking Glass Wars. That's really effective. So, you know, kind of like with my novel, which took five years, I'm learning on the job. So I'm a little slow. I get the producing part of it, but I'm really trying to craft the the, the script for the pilot sure. for the backup. So that's I've been spending the lion's share of my time doing that. And and I do get a lot of people who are very supportive and really want to see this in another medium all right very good yeah so thanks for reminding me that i'm i'm uh i'm 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 letting people down i appreciate that <laughs> i mean you talked about it earlier in the the interview the failing. You know, always failing up you know <laughs> i'm failing uh, right now i'm not failing up but i'm definitely failing i i just want you to know frank i i do what i can to help out you so you're welcome <laughs> yeah yeah you're you're a great coach my dad would love you <laughs> all right now, I did have another question, but you mentioned the art and that you have stories about that. So can you talk about that? Because I'm the, I'm more curious about Star Wars uh, the art in the book. Yeah, so 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 I have this character, it's a card soldier, and I have a description of the I was playing around, my book was not even finished. I was in in the middle of it, and I was like, okay, what is a card soldier? How could that card fold completely? And so the deck could be stacked out in a field somewhere and you wouldn't know it. And then those cards could, you know, somehow animate into something like that's what I need. I need something cool like that. What would that look like? And I, I couldn't figure it out. And I, um, I, I had seen the artwork on Star Wars and I said, I'm going to write an uh, email to Doug Chang, who was the artist uh, on um so much of the uh of the star wars and i said hey i'm this writer and i'm a producer and mary had come out only a few years later so i was like oh i'm the producer of something about mary i'm going to produce this movie the looking glass wars um i need some concept art so he said okay i can you know i'm busy i'm working on a uh zemeckis movie but I can do something on the weekend. And I said, okay, this is what I need. So I, the thing I had written, I sent it to him. And so the art that you see in the book 
where the card soldiers are unfolded, are unfolding. Mm -hmm. He did that artwork and I put it on my wall uh, when I was, when I went to rewrite all those scenes and that became, that was my, was my Doug Chang crutch or collaboration. I was like, okay, Doug, I am going to write about that. <laughs> and so, uh, that's why the card soldiers look a little bit like, you know, uh, if you see the cover, what do they look like? Mm -hmm. They look like they, droids. They look like a B1 battle droid. Yeah, they look like yes, droids. Exactly. I, I and, saw that, uh, looking on your page and everything. I'm like, why does it look shockingly similar to a battle droid? But now I guess this is why. Yeah, and you know, I, I was a little bit mixed about it because I thought, oh, it looks a lot like Star Wars. And I go, can that be a bad thing if you're a first-time writer and you have a book called The Looking Glass Wars? And then when I went to London, in London at this big bookstore, I went and my publisher said, we have the window display for you. We got the whole, that's it, that's it. There yep. they are. Doug. That is fantastic, by the way. Yeah. That's great work. So I go to this store for this uh, for this talk, and they're really proud. My publishers are really proud that they got a whole window display. I show up alongside, on the other side, was Star Wars. So I have this oh. picture, <laughs> Star Wars, Frank Bedore, Looking Glass Wars. So I said, okay, Doug, you did your job. I'm fine. But, That's fantastic. But over the years, when I do school events, kids ask me that, and I, I tell them that, the guy who did Star Wars worked on it, and they think that's very cool. Well, just so you know, I think that's very cool. Thank that, you very that much. That is really, really cool. So I so. did an animated trailer way back when, before anybody did book trailers, and it was animated with the card soldiers flying off the deck, landing, and unfolding. It was the coolest trailer a book has ever had way back then, and I use it in school events. And then I say, hey, if I ever did a movie, would you guys go see this movie? And it's bedlam. They just erupt. And then one thing I also do is I tell them, I could make this movie next week. The problem is I don't have an actor to play the 10-year-old Alice and the 12-year-old Dodge. Do you guys know anybody that wants to star in a big movie? And then when they all throw up their hands, because they all get super crazy, like then I call sure. people out and I have them read a scene and in the scene, there the boy and the girl they they have they they like each other and they get all and then the kids <laughs> lose it because I make them hold hands and they lose oh, it. Boys no. throw the script down and they won't do it. Well, yeah, because you can't you you, you, can't you can't do that in front of your classmates. No, it's very liking girls. Ugh. <laughs> I'll catch cooties. So yeah, no, that's very cool. Um, and just boy, my brains are are, are going because I just think this is such a cool concept, and and I love the artwork in this. And now that I know that there's a Star Wars, it, it, it's a it's a slight Star Wars tie-in, but that makes it even better for me um, because I may have a slight Star Wars addiction. So <laughs> just a small one. Yeah. Out of the 198 Funko Pops that are behind me, probably about 160 of them are Star Wars. So <laughs> yeah, no, now you're not quite there yet. Not quite. Yeah. You know, when it's 100 yeah, percent, then we'll know you there's trouble we'll exactly an quick, intervention real quick this animated uh trailer where can we like is it on youtube or something because i'd on, love yeah, to see that yeah, check it out it's on youtube and it's on the um home page of my uh website 
frankbedore.com and under the videos, you uh, you can't miss it. The book unfolds, which uh, you see the pages unfolding. And then I got this really great voice actor. And then you see the cards just fly land. It's only 30 seconds, but it's. We'll add it in right after this little portion. So John, we can add that in right now. There's a, there's a good market for it. All right. Well, cool. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. Anyway. Get to work, uh, editor. <laughs> you're no chop. longer John. You're just editor. That's right. Editor boy. Uh, I've called him worse. He'll get over it. Uh, yeah. All right. So, um, Frank, we have one final question for you. And uh, so we used to um, uh, bore our, our guests, not just with our conversation, but also with a, with a quiz at the end. So now we just try to just bore them during the conversation and we ended up with a silly question instead. And we settled on this one because we think that this is a question that not many people get asked anymore as an adult. And we think it's a shame. Frank Bador, what is your favorite dinosaur? Well, for sure, a T-Rex. There's just no question. For sure. And All right. I, I think my, uh, I think it would be my son's as well. So <laughs> it's a safe option. It's a good the choice. Phrase. Or Barney, you know. Or Barney. <laughs> I know he's Barney the dinosaur, but does that really count? Um, I think you so. Know, I think so. so. We, we have a face. We have a very large Facebook group that follows, and so I put a question in there the other day. I asked this question of our group: "What was your favorite dinosaur?" Do you know how many people included a picture, a meme, a GIF of Barney? as their favorite dinosaurs everybody, everybody i lost yeah. count yeah. yeah but there was a lot of people that were like uh and people were like no and no i'm not joking and there was the picture <laughs> of barney well i just fall into the middle with the pack sometimes that's a great place to live i'm i'm over in triceratops corner all by myself so you know right uh, one ankylosaurus please there you go oh uh, very all good right. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, where can our listeners go and find more about you and about your work? Uh, well, if you go to uh, frankbedore.com, it has all of my work, and you can find my podcast, All Things Alice, wherever you listen to podcasts, and um, certainly you can find it uh, on uh, frankbedore.com. Um, so I hope that uh, some of your listeners that uh, are interested in Alice and talking about creativity and the power of imagination will come over and check it out. I, I know I'm definitely going to go check it out because just this conversation with you, I'm, I already got it pulled up on Spotify. So once we're done here, I'm going to start listening to episode one. Okay. Uh, well, the episode um, with uh, Bad Hats, the theater group is terrific. They're a really creative, articulate group talking about their Alice in Wonderland musical um they composed all the music they're in uh, uh they're in canada and cool. they they perform all of the music while they're acting out the the scenes it's uh it's a it's a very lively enjoyable uh podcast so that one's fresh i think it went up on wednesday mm -hmm. so check it out all right cool well thank you we'll make sure to put those in our show description and uh in the show notes or our listeners can find everything about you. 
Great. Well, thank you guys. It was a yeah. real pleasure and uh, it's fun talking about pop culture. You have a great podcast and- uh, Oh, thank you. Uh, all right, guys, we also want to remind you that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get more amazing guests like Frank Bador here today to have these great conversations. And this was fantastic. And we we're sure that uh, if you go check out the links that are down in our show notes down below, that not only can you find more great information about Frank, his books and everything else that he's working on, also his uh, his podcast as well. Uh, but also check out our Patreon because there will be portions of this conversation that you did not hear on our YouTube channel or on your favorite audio podcast destination. Those are Patreon only moments. And those are our bonus clips, our behind the scenes type of fun. And uh, there are five levels of Patreon that you could subscribe to from $1 to $40 each with their own little extra bonus perks and fun for you to have. So you're gonna be wanna, you're gonna wanna check that out for sure. But if for whatever reason you are not happy with the content of our show today, please feel free to lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department. And that, of course, is Warren from There's Something About Mary. Now, <laughs> Warren doesn't really care how many copies of the complaint you send in. He's not really going to look at them. And really, he doesn't even care about the complaints. If you really want to get us in trouble with Warren, tell him we have his baseball. Or trick us into touching his headphones. Either way, we're screwed. Now, the real trick is you have to touch his headphones first to get his attention. And if he hasn't beat you into a pulp, well, then then you know what we're in for. And so far, only Ted and Mary seem to have possessed that superpower. Not even Brett Favre, the Brett Favre, the one and only <laughs> Brett Favre, can do that trick anymore. So choose carefully and just keep putting up with our shtick or try to go for his headphones. Because if you do, it's a bold move. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us for the FSF podcast. And thank you to Frank Bedore. Goodbye. Thanks. See you guys. Copyright 2023 FSF Podcast. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by FSF Podcast. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at info at fsfpodcast.com. Original music by Jordan Michaels.